Good morning, everyone. And let's begin with prayer this morning. Gracious Father in heaven, we are so thankful for your love and truth and for your, uh, for your uh, son, Jesus, and for all that you've done for us. We ask that you will join us today with your spirit, enlighten our minds, draw our hearts in unity with you. Give us discernment and wisdom. Help us mature and become uh, representatives for you at this time in human history. We pray in your holy name. Amen. We have some exciting changes coming. One of them I'm going to let you know about today is that our time for class on Saturday mornings is changing first Sabbath in April. We are going to begin meeting at 10 a.m. instead of 10.20. We will do an hour class like we've always done. Class in the room, that's when you guys interact, ask your questions. But one of the things we want to do is we want to help our online class to be uh, more opportunity for interaction. So after an hour of live interactive here class that you're following along with, we're going to have 30 minutes of Q&A for you guys online. And we will get you the details how you can be live interacting with us. But you're going to have to do that through a members section. And we're going to be launching a member section on our website. And you know how much it's going to cost to be a member? $1,000. <laughs> how much? Nothing. Nothing. Because that's what we do. It's going to be free. In the member section, we're going to be building a lot of resources that are going to be free, uh, including the question-answer interactive process that we're going to do uh, if you're a member online. And we will give you the format of how to put those questions in so we can answer them. We're doing Lesson 12, uh, Isaiah, Desire of Nations, and uh, during our recent leadership workshop, uh, my mind was triggered by uh, uh, Linda Ojala's comment of gratitude, so I wrote a little something for fun, and we put it up on our Facebook page this week, and people had some some, uh, fun with it, and so I thought I'd just share it with you here today, uh, uh, just just for fun. It says, uh, if you use your aptitude promoting platitudes, then with certitude you will have magnitude of disquietude and turpitude. So develop an attitude of gratitude by embracing the multitude of the Lord's beatitudes and you will have solitude and fortitude. <laughs> Just fun. Uh, memory verse today, Isaiah 63, the Gentiles shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. That's New King James Version. And then the New English Version, or New English Translation is, nations come to your light, kings to your bright light. Who are these Gentiles or these nations? Who are these people? Who are the ones who have the light to which these nations are coming? Spiritual Israel. Is it speaking of genetic Israel? Or is it speaking of the people of God, the people who are like Abraham in character, the people of faith, the people who circumcised in their heart? But Israel was called, the genetic Israel was called. What were they called for? They were called for a purpose. What was the purpose? Evangelize evangelize were for a purpose. Prepare the world for an event. Oh, for the coming time. There it is. To prepare the world and to be the human avenue through which Messiah comes. Now, God intervened through Old Testament. You read Old Testament scripture, you need to see the thread. Genesis 3, after Adam and Eve sins, God promises Messiah. The rest of Old Testament is that thread. That's why we focus where we focus. Just keep that in mind. That's why we're not focusing on China, Africa, other places. Jesus doesn't come through those branches of the family tree. Jesus comes through the descendants of Abraham. It's also why we don't focus on Esau's kids. It's also eventually why we stop focusing on all the 12 tribes of Jacob. We end up down with just the two tribes that are left at the end because that's still the branch through which the Messiah comes. 
That's the focus. Satan is working in Old Testament times to, to destroy and stop the plan. God is working, intervening in multiple places to keep open avenue for Messiah. That's the whole real message of the Old Testament. And Israel limped along with two tribes left at the end. Ten are gone. But, but, the, but they were there to the point that Messiah came. Praise God for that. How did they do with the other part of their mission, though, to evangelize the world and prepare the world to receive the Messiah? How did they do with that part of it? Hmm. So who are the ones with the light today to which the nations are to be drawn? Is it, is it Palestine? Is it the, the, the genetic Jews in Israel and Middle East today? Is that, is that who this is referring to? Anyone that follows God. Anyone that follows God. What would be the rising light or the dawn light, as the text says? What does that mean, rising light or dawn light? What is that? The truth about the characters. If we go to Tuesday's lesson, go ahead. Pardon? The sun of righteousness rising within with healing. Uh, referring to Malachi. Uh, in, in Hebrew, in the second paragraph in Tuesday's lesson, it says, in Hebrew, the person, this person who is the light that they're drawn to, is feminine, singular. It must be Zion personified as a woman who is mentioned near the end of chapter, um, previous chapter, chapter 59. So the people of earth who are covered in darkness will come to Zion. They will be drawn by the light of God's glory that has arisen over her. And it goes on to say, notice, uh, although Zion is Jerusalem, the emphasis is more on the people than the physical location. So what do you think about it? As you hear that, okay, the the Hebrew there is feminine, Zion. Feminine Zion. Hmm. And it's a city that is a light that draws people. Is is your your database dropping any other things in, in there to say, oh, I know what that is. Feminine light of the bride of Christ. The bride of Christ. This is the this is the church, and in the church is also who who is it that fills the New Jerusalem, the city that is a light. It's the people of God. Yeah. So this is referring to the people of God, the the invisible. Is this a denomination? No. No, it's the boy. You guys were resounding on that. <laughs> It says that the last paragraph Tuesday says God has a universal purpose when he chose Abraham as his descendant through Abraham. All the families of the earth would be blessed. So God's covenant with Abraham was ultimately intended to be a covenant with all humanity through Abraham. He and his descendants would be God's channel of revelation to the world. And the blessing through Abraham, we've already said was Christ. Christ is the blessing. Yes. Now, back to Sabbath lesson, the first paragraph in Sabbath lesson is a quote from the book Faith and Works by Ellen White, and in that quote, there's a sentence that says the following, nothing but his righteousness can entitle us to one of the blessings of the covenant of grace. Nothing but his righteousness can entitle us. When you hear that, entitle, entitle. What does entitle mean to you? Is it legal? 
like you title a piece of property or you get a title to a car. This is uh, this these texts like this are very very popular among the legal adherents. They like it. Yeah, it's a legal titling. You get a title through his righteousness. Qualify. As a result of our choice. Or is it entitled? We are entitled. Not titled. Entitled. We ha- we are entitled. What is entitled? We have a right. We have a right to heaven. Because Jesus paid the price, and we claim the blood payment made to our account, then we are entitled. It's still legal. It's all right. Or is the title some element of reality, this entitling, some element of reality, some aspect of design law? When we receive the righteousness of Christ, does something actually happen to us? The Bible uses we're reborn, we get a new heart rate spirit, yes, these are metaphors, but it's talking about something transformational. Does, the, does our character change when we receive his righteousness? And in the Bible... What is the Bible way of representing someone's character? By what? Name. Oh, oh, are you saying that, that when we accept and receive the righteousness of Christ, we get a new name? And what's that new name? When you have the name of a, what would you call that right there? Isn't that a title? It's a title to the quarterly. Do we become entitled as Christian, entitled as Christ-like, entitled as God-like? Entitled as his son and daughter, family of God. Is that what it means? Am I stretching? So meaning I'm stretching? I'm pl- word playing? It's our own story. Well, think of this from the Desire of Ages, page 300. Does this help at all? The proud heart strives to earn salvation, but both our title to heaven and our fitness for it, are found in the righteousness of Christ. Does that help or confuse? Is that, does our title then the legal right to go, because Jesus paid the price and has and is, and is, uh, removed the, the, the legal condemnation, and we have a legal right to heaven, but then we accept uh, the righteous and we are transformed, so we, now we are fitted for heaven, so it's both legal and transformational. Is that what, what this author is saying? Well, consider this quote from the same author. It's from Desire of Ages 130. By the one who had revolted in heaven, the kingdoms of this world were offered Christ to buy his homage to the principles of evil. But Christ would not be bought. He had come to establish a kingdom of righteousness. Just pause for a second. What kind of kingdom did Christ come to establish? Not of this earth. Not of this world. Not a kingdom of imposed rules. Not a kingdom of judicial authority. Not a kingdom of power and might. Not a kingdom of buying and selling and owning. Of human economics. Not a kingdom of lies and fraud and deceit. The kingdom of God, Jesus said other places, was, is within you. A kingdom of righteousness. Can you want the quote? And he could not abandon his purpose. With the same temptation, Satan approaches men, and here he has better success than with Christ. To men he offers the kingdom of this world on condition that they will acknowledge his supremacy. 
Now, when you hear that, does your mind go, oh, that must mean I have to go to a Satan coven and I have to, you know, get down and trade my soul in some, like, uh, you know, exchange and sign some thing with a little blood drop that he now owns my soul and now, and now I've, I've, I, I give him, is that, is that what this is talking about? Some cultic ritual? So when you, when, when this author says that he offers the kingdoms of the world if they will acknowledge his supremacy, does that mean that they have to, in their heart, go, I acknowledge Satan is more supreme than God? Is that what that is talking about? So what do you think it means for someone to acknowledge Satan's supremacy? That they buy into his methods and principles. That they accept his methods, his designs, his ways, his motives, his principles as the best, as supreme. That's the way to get it done. That's how you get there. That's what success looks like. We use the imposed laws of the governments of earth to pursue justice. We will get social justice by getting the right laws involved, the right president elected, the right judges in place. We will fix the brokenness of the world with more legislation, more police, more force, more fines, more punishment. We will, we will get there with more power. Continuing on with this quote, he requires that they sacrifice integrity, disregard conscience, and indulge selfishness. So when you sacrifice integrity, disregard your conscience, and indulge selfishness, you're preferring his methods. He's supreme. That's the way you get there. The ends justify the means. This is what happens to all those who are seeking justice through human governments. Their consciences become seared. They eventually compromise their integrity. They'll eventually justify every act of evil for the good that they're going to do for the greater good. You see this all the time. Would you kill one innocent child if you could cure cancer? Do you not see this played out all the time? This is how you justify all evil, by just pitting it against some greater good. That's the way you get there. you got to get there. It's play Satan's game. Continue on with the quote. Christ bids them seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. But Satan walks by their side and says, whatever may be true in regard to life eternal, in order to make a success in this world, you must serve me. That might be true for eternal life to accept the payment of Jesus. But on earth, if you want to succeed, you've got to do it my way. You've got to get a hold of the government. You've got to get the right people in, involved. You've got to get, you, you know what, there was fraud committed in the last election, and if you're going to win next round round, you've got to get your people in place so you can commit fraud, because only those who are most fraudulent will win. You can never win a fair election again. It's done. It's over. You, you good Christian folks who want to believe in honesty, you know you can't have an honest election to get your people in. You've got to cheat. It's the only way to win. In the end, and the only way to, to, to get the right Supreme Court justice, the only, the only way to protect the unborn, we've got to cheat. We've got to commit fraud. But it, but it will protect the innocent. It's righteous to do. The people who pursue more power, more money, more fame, more control through government 
This is how we succeed. Then Satan says, I hold your welfare in my hands. I can give you riches, pleasure, honor, and happiness. Hearken to my counsel. Do, do not allow yourself to be carried away with whimsical notions of honesty or self-sacrifice. I will prepare the way before you. Thus multitudes are deceived. They consent to live for the service of self, and Satan is satisfied. While he allures them with the hope of worldly dominion, he gains dominion over the soul. Worldly dominion. What's the message of today? We must save the planet. We must make it right. We must set a social justice standard. We must save lives. It's our dominion. We must exercise authority over others. Compel conformity. It's the right thing to do. Continue on, final sex segment of this quote. This is our pages 130. But he offers that which is not his to bestow and which is soon to be wrested from him. In return, he beguiles them of their title to the inheritance of sons of God. Beguiles them of their title to the inheritance of the sons of God. What's our title? We are entitled as children of God to God's kingdom. We receive a new title, a new name, a new character, God-like. And God receives us as his children into the kingdom of truth, love, freedom, and all the blessings from our creator. And what enables us to this title? The righteousness of Christ. Now, consider this quote and see if this clears it up or did I just throw a wrench in the works? This is a Review and Herald, June 4, 1895. The righteousness by which we are justified is imputed. The righteousness by which we are sanctified is imparted. The first is our title to heaven. The second is our fitness for heaven. Did I just throw you off? Imputed versus imparted righteousness. Do you all have immediate clarity on the difference of what those are? Have you ever struggled and stumbled over those things? What does it mean? Does it mean imputed is the legal proclamation that Jesus came, he paid the penalty, God imputes to us by declaring us to be righteous, even though we're not, in some legal mechanistic way. And then if you claim, if you accept that legal payment and continue to trust God, then he imparts righteousness to you, which is the transformational righteousness. Have you ever heard it this way? We'll see if this clears it up. Manuscript release 349. Christ offers a love that passes knowledge. Passes knowledge. Love passes knowledge. This love is not something kept apart from us, but it takes hold of the entire being. So that, that description there, is that something happening away in a record book, in a courtroom somewhere, or is that happening in us? Okay. Is that describing imputed or imparted? Imputed or imparted? I'm going to keep coming back to that. I want you to have a functional sense of imputed versus imparted. Keep going with the quote. The heaven to which the Christian is climbing will be attained only by those who have the crown, this crowning grace, the crowning grace of the transforming love in us. This 
is the new affection which pervades the soul. Again, is this legal, a declaration, something in books, or actual transformation of love pervading us? And what is the righteousness of Christ? Isn't it God's perfect, righteous character lived out in Jesus' human life? Isn't that what it is? And what is the character of God? God is love. So this love is the righteousness of Christ, isn't it? The old is left behind. Love is the great controlling power. When love leads, all the faculties of the mind and spirit are enlisted. Love to God and love to man will give the clear title to heaven. Well, wait a minute now. Hold on. I just read that the righteousness by which we're justified is imputed, and that is our title to heaven. The righteousness by which we're justified is an imputed righteousness, and that imputed righteousness is our title to heaven. And now I've just read that love to God and love to man is our clear title to heaven. Is that imputed or imparted? Imparted, 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 I hear. But wait, the title's imputed. Have I confused anybody yet? I hope so. <laughs> because I'm, I'm wanting to disentangle. Uh, we've, we've all been indoctrinated into systems that are actually contradictory. The way out is think design law. Think design law. How does reality work? Do you hear love for God and love for others differently than the righteousness of Christ, or are you hearing those now the same? Truly, the law of God written on your heart is the law of love. Love the Lord your God with all your mind, heart, soul, and strength. The neighbor is yourself. That is the perfect character of God lived out the living law restored within us. It's all it's, it's, it's ways to describe the same thing. Can you have the love of God, love, legally applied in an accounting way to a book? Then why is it these theologians are teaching us that we can have righteousness legally applied to a book? Yes. Because all these terms confuse our kids. They confuse me. I know they confuse my daughters. And so then they have to turn to someone of authority to say, well, what what does this mean? Because it's all confusing. As soon as you strip away all that confusion and just break it down to simple terms of design law and how love works and how you are changed by how love affects you, now it's freeing to them. But if you couple it with confusing terms and this whole circle of I've got to turn to someone else to interpret it to me, then no one gets anywhere and we stay stuck in the Middle Ages. I really like what you said. He brought out a good point, a good principle. And that is Satan is the author of confusion. God is not the author of confusion. And Satan's kingdom advances where there's non, non-clarity, where there's uncertainty, where there's mystical things, things that don't make sense, things that go, that's just beyond me. I'm just going to have to believe that without thinking. That's part of his goal. He doesn't want you thinking. He wants you accepting someone in authority who is, you're told knows more than you. Well, they have an advanced degree in you know, theological studies. So who am I to question what the, the theologian says? You're a priest of God is who you are. You're a being, you're a child of God given a mind, and you're to develop that mind so that you possess the mind of Christ. 
your own individuality, your own capacity to think, reason, and discern. The only way for you to get stronger, understand, the only way for you to get stronger is to exercise. You cannot get physically strong by by lack of exercise. If you don't use it, you lose it. You can't get mentally strong. That's why the mature are those who develop by practice the ability to discern. You must reason. You must think. You must wait. People like me can stimulate you, present you ideas, but then you've got to weigh them out. You can't believe, well, Dr. Jennings said so, so, and he studies hard, so I guess I'll believe it. Terrible idea. I never want people to believe because I say so. Never. I have my book, Could It Be This Simple, that I give to many of my patients. And, I, and, and as I hand it to them, I always say there's only one rule with this book. Don't believe anything because it's in a book. I always tell every one of them, don't believe it because it's in a book. Read it for yourself, weigh it out, think about it, process it, test it, and then when you're persuaded that it's true, believe it. That grows the mind. Just accept, Even if you accept the truth, but you've never actually weighed it for yourself, you're still enfeebled. Think about taking a math class. The only way for you to get proficient in math is to work problems. If you go to a, a, a math professor and you go, you know, I, I never want to make mistakes. I've been told if you make mistakes, it goes in your record book in heaven and you'll be punished for it. I never want to make mistakes. I want to always get the right answers. So, so teacher, here's the problems that are before me. Tell me the answers. And, and so the teacher does. And you memorize them. And you memorized every, and they're the right answers to every problem on your math exam. Do you actually know how to do math? This is how much of Christianity teaches the world. Know the answers. Have no clue how to get there. And then when the teacher, have you ever had a teacher who actually had the, got the answer wrong? The teacher got it wrong? Yeah, I have too. And if you don't know how to do math, you won't know you got the wrong answer. And there are professors out there that, that would function this way. Sadly, I'm theology professors, not math professors. <laughs> so, what's the difference between imputed and, and imparted? Impute means to attribute or ascribe, and part means to invest or give. That's what it means. So, does imputed righteousness change us, or does imparted righteousness change us, or do both? You guys are so smart. You're already ahead of me. See if this is out of um, AG 96, uh, Amazing Grace, page 96. But we all with open face behold as in a glass the glory of the Lord and are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. There's a law described here. What's that law? Law of worship. By beholding, we become changed. Both neurobiologically we change by what we assimilate, admire, worship, and characterologically. That's what's happening there. Beholding Christ means studying his life as given in his word. We are to dig for truth as for hidden treasure. We are to fix our eyes upon Christ. Where are we to fix our eyes? Where does the media fix the eyes of the world? On self, through fear messaging. Through fear messaging. The messaging of the modern media is be afraid, be afraid. Be afraid. Be afraid you'll be profiled. Be afraid you'll be discriminated against. Be afraid the earth is going to die and the oceans are going to rise. Be afraid of war. Be afraid of energy failures. Be afraid of storms. Be afraid. Be afraid. Be afraid. And what is fear? Where does fear cause you to focus? On self. And love and fear inversely proportional, like a seesaw. Understand, this is how it works. When love goes up, 
fear goes down. Neurobiologically, when your brain's love circuits fire, they send a calming signal to your brain's fear circuits. When your fear circuits fire, however, you become paralyzed. You freeze. It's the fight or flight response. You become more concerned for, for surviving the survival drives. And you'll run over somebody. You might not even fully realize you do it. Somebody else fire in a theater and you, and you, you smell smoke and you just run out and you, you didn't even realize you knocked an 80 year old over on your way out. When we take him as our personal savior, he gives us boldness to approach the throne of grace. By beholding, we become changed and more assimilated into the one who is perfect in character. Is that a legal declaration or is that an actual experience happening in the believer? By receiving, no, listen, notice what's happening is morally assimilated to the one who is perfect in character. Legal or transformational. Now, next words. By receiving his imputed righteousness through the transforming power of the Holy Spirit, we become like him. How does that work? So somehow this author thinks imputed righteousness transforms, yet it's something which is attributed to or ascribed rather than imparted. And this author in other places talks about the transforming power of the imparted righteousness of Christ. But here it's the transforming power of the imputed righteousness of Christ. How does that work? Imputed righteousness is the righteousness of Christ that God pours into us through the activities of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, to bring us to repentance. And repentance is the change of heart from alienation, rebellion, enmity to trust. And when the heart changes from enmity to trust, that's called at one minute, okay. That's, that's, what, that's what's experienced. That's when we become part of the family of God. That's when we're adopted. That's when the attached to the vine. That's also known as justification. It's treating us as part of the heavenly family. It is loving us, cherishing us, valuing us, esteeming us, the apple of his eye, despite our sin, despite our fear, despite our selfishness, despite, despite our guilt and shame, despite that we are running and hiding in the bushes and covering ourselves with fig leaves. He comes to us gently. He imputes to us all the righteousness of his own character and what Christ has revealed. I look at it that if all good things come from God, then God puts it in our heart to want to get to know him. And by doing that, we become more like him by daily communing and stuff with him, saying that's imputed to us. His character, his love is imputed to us because all good things come from him anyway. Romans 2, 4, the kindness of God leads us to repentance. repentance. That's imputed righteousness. That's what it's describing. God's righteousness driving God to attribute to us righteousness we don't deserve. In other words, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. It is this righteousness working on our hearts that you're saying wins us to trust, wins us to repentance. And then once we're one to repentance, we open the heart. And he imparts to us the righteousness of Christ that transforms us. So both both are transforming. And you will see this in the Desire of Ages, quote page 300. The proud heart strives to earn salvation, but both our title 
to heaven and our fitness for heaven are found in the righteousness of Christ. The Lord can do nothing toward the recovery of man until convinced of his own weakness and stripped of all self-sufficiency, he yields himself to the control of God. Then he can receive the gift that God is waiting to bestow. Notice both. The imputed wins us to trust where we repent and open the heart and receive the transformation. And if you think about the thief on the cross, you really only got one. You really only got that turning away, that enmity turned into trust. He didn't get a lot of time to to develop the, the character. That's right. He didn't. He didn't grow much, did he? All right. So Isaiah, uh, boy, man, time's just flying. Sunday's lesson, Isaiah 59, is telling us, read 1 and 2. It says, surely I am the Lord. Surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save, nor his ear too dull to hear. But your iniquities have separated you from God, and your sins have hidden his face from you, so that you will not hear him. Now, notice the second paragraph in the lesson that says, God chooses to ignore his people, not because that, that is his desire, but because your iniquities have been a barrier between you and God. Here is one of the clearest statements in the Bible regarding the effect of sin on the divine-human relationship. Isaiah spends the rest of the chapter, 59, elaborating on this point, which is seen all through the human history. Sin can destroy our relationship with the Lord and thus lead to our eternal ruin, not because sin drives God away from us, but because it drives us away from him. This has uh, got a lot of good, nice things in it. For instance, sin does sever us from God. Sin does separate us from God. Sin does damage our relationship. There's no question. I'm glad they put that in there. But what do you think about this idea of the first sentence that God chooses to ignore his people? Is that actually true? He has stated he, he has ignored some of our bad behavior and our bad thoughts. Does God ignore sinners? No. So if you look at the rest of the Bible, while we were yet sinners, Christ ignored us until we got righteous. <laughs> no. While we were, he, he died for us. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. If God is for us, who can be against us? God was in the son, reconciling the world to himself. God does not ignore sinners. This is not the message of Isaiah 59. God's provisions are, uh, for our deliverance were delivered to us while we were yet sinners. And they're available to everybody all the time. His, his, his provisions for your healing and salvation are always available. He's not ignoring. He never ignores such a plea, such a cry from anybody who wants to be delivered from sin. Never ignored. What the lesson, so what is the reason the lesson suggests there's an ignoring going on here? What do you think? It's because they have a philosophy. And it's a, it's a philosophy of God's sovereignty. And it goes back to the core question I make you ask over and over again. The core question, how do you understand God's law? If God's law works like human law, then sovereignty is enforcing, is, 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 um, imposing law and enforcing law. Thus, if something happens, it's God's will. If it doesn't happen, it's because it's not his will. He makes it happen. He's in charge. So he, if he doesn't answer, he's ignoring. If you understand design law, then you understand his sovereignty is always the outworking of his character and methods throughout creation as he designed them. He's consistent with himself. And one of his design laws, the law of love, only exists in the atmosphere of freedom. And so what's happening here is that God never uses Satan's method of compelling power, force, intimidation, He leaves people free to make their choices, and he sustains those laws upon which 
the universe operates that they're violating his principles on. So here's what's actually happening and why God doesn't answer their prayer. And some interpret that as ignoring. A person prays and they pray to God for a happy marriage while they beat their spouse on a regular basis. Can they have a happy marriage while they beat their spouse? And when the spouse finally divorces them, do they look to God and say, God, why didn't you answer my prayer? Why'd you ignore me? Or one of my patients that was really mad at God because their lungs were not getting better. And they said, I've been praying to God to heal my lungs and my lungs are getting worse. And I said, well, have you stopped smoking yet? They said, no. (laughs) You laugh at that, but this is what's happening. They're praying for outcomes that depend on harmony with God and his designs and his purposes. And they're violating his designs and purposes while they're praying for him to overrule his own designs and purposes and fix the outcome that violates what they're actually doing. And he won't violate his design laws the way he's built reality around. He cannot impose happiness on an abusive relationship. He can't do it. Understand he has the power to make two robots function on programming that approximate or look externally like they're happy, but as soon as they're robots, there's no love, there's no joy, there's no happiness. He can't impose that. And many people, so many people, because they have a corrupt view of God's law, have a corrupt view of his sovereignty, and therefore when they see God not intervening with miracles to change the outcome, they think God's ignoring What did God actually do in all this rebellion? And they're crying out. They're reaping the consequences of their own bad choices. They're suffering. They're crying for him to fix the outcome, and he's not fixing it. They're saying, well, he's ignoring us. No, he sent Isaiah. He sent Isaiah. I have a spokesman. I'll tell you the problem, people. Here, I'll diagnose it. I'll tell you the answer. Here's what you need to do. And he sent Micah. And he sent Amos. And he sent all these Old Testament messengers. And what did he do with the messengers? He didn't ignore at all. He intervened, ultimately sending a son. Well, that's where, you know, I hear people say the same thing, though. Well, if God would just take away my desire to smoke, then I would be able to have my lungs get better. So again, you know, it's not uh, God making you a robot. It's you having free will and then using your ability to discern right from wrong or health issues and stop something. And have you heard the accounts where somebody's give testimony where they prayed that and they say, and God did. So how do we make the, uh, God did in this case, and this person, God didn't. How do we make the difference? Do you want to know? Yes. You want to, yeah. One, one person, well, one person had their TV off before sunset on Sabbath. <laughs> well, that's, that's the key. If they had just got their TV off on, before Sabbath, then God could answer, but they were still breaking the law, so he couldn't help them there. That's the answer? No, it's not the answer. I am telling you how some primitive minds explain things, okay? Some children explain things. No, the answer is no temptation is taking you, but that which is common to man, and God will not allow you to be tempted more than you're able. There are some individuals out there who actually cannot. They don't have the strength within them to resist. 
but they really want to. Their heart wants to. They want to be free. They've gotten entrapped, and they're biologically too weak now to overcome. But they, in their heart, their choice is, I don't want this anymore. I really want to be free. God sometimes in their lives will give them that desire is gone, and they never smoke again because they really want freedom. Others, though, they don't want freedom. They want to think they want freedom. They really don't want it. They like, they, they, they like the concept of freedom. They like the concept of better lungs. They like the concept of not spending $5 a day on cigarettes. But they don't like the idea of being without their cigarette. And so they really don't want it. That's the difference. And then let me talk about how you get power. And this is what many people fail to, to realize as well. The Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth that will enlighten our minds with truth that we can comprehend to lead us to decision points on various areas in our life. Wherever our journey is, we have, we're at different places, different decision points. And then he gets us conviction off the time. So we know, we know the decision we need to make. And at that moment, we're left completely free. We can choose that decision or we can delay it, put it off, avoid it, don't want to, uh, maybe later, uh, or to reject it outright. No, I'm not going to do it. But we're stuck in our spiritual journey at that point. There's no advancement. And there's no power. The Holy Spirit leads, enlightens, convicts, and leaves free. When we actually, with the will, with the heart, genuinely choose the truth. Yes, Lord. Yes, I surrender. I choose that. I put them down. I throw them away. Now give me the strength. Then you receive divine power to follow through. But you don't get the power until you make the choice. So some people pray for the power before they've actually chosen to apply what they know. That's another reason some are stuck. Monday, second paragraph. To begin, the first question is, how many of us have sinned? The Bible is unequivocal. All of us have. Redemption, therefore, cannot be based on the lack of sin, but must be based on forgiveness. Paul agrees. All have sinned. And so there can be no distinction on that basis. Those who are justified can be judged as just only because they receive by faith the gift of God's righteousness through the sacrifice of Christ. And then they, uh, on this idea of forgiveness, they reference Jeremiah thirty-one thirty-four, which reads, No longer will a man teach his neighbor or brother, saying, Know the Lord, because all will know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. Do you think they've made the case that redemption is based on forgiveness? Or do you go, wait a minute. What law lens am I understanding this word forgiveness through? Is this a legal forgiveness? Is that what this is? Is this correct understanding of what salvation is? Hmm. We have design law lens rather than impose law. The impose law is always about forgiveness. You go before the judge, you're guilty. The only chance you have is somebody's got to pay your penalty. You think how that works. Think about the corruption of God. Just, just try to go to any human court. And in a human court, mild crime, somebody just stole something. Major crime, mass murder. And in the court, clearly guilty, but their loving brother says up, stands up and says, you know what, I love my brother so much, I can't let you sentence him. I'll take his penalty. Will you convict me in his place and set him free? How many of you see that? Well, that, that's beautiful. That's just. I love that. 
I'd love to ha- live in a country like that, where the innocent go, go to jail and the guilty go free. That's what this penal legal thing tries to make just. And the only way you can accept it is to damage your mind and go, I can't think about that. You have to derail your thinking because it's unreasonable. It's crazy. That's imposed law. Design law, though, is that uh, realizes that sin damages the sinner, just like we read in Isaiah 60, and realizes that God is always for us, and it's the sin condition that we need to be freed of. It's a terminal condition, and we need healing. And that God's personal pardon or his extending of forgiveness to us does not actually fix our condition. The problem was not, the problem of our, our salvation was not an unwilling God who was unwilling to forgive. It's not the problem. His forgiveness, though, doesn't fix the problem. So, if we were to read Jeremiah 31, 34, which is the one they quoted, and not cut God's word off in, mid, in midstream there and give it the whole quote from God, you might see what God is actually saying. And we'll start in verse 33. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will the man teach his neighbor or his brother saying, know the Lord, for they'll all know me from the least to the greatest. Uh, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. Now what's the message? What comes before I will forgive your sins and remember them no more? Isn't it interesting they just clip that out? Yes, because it doesn't fit the imposed law model. God heals the heart, restores us to righteousness, and then forgiveness and no more remembering of sins. It's like this. A parent who's a physician and has a child struggling with the disease, say leukemia, and while the child is sick with leukemia, they have vomiting and diarrhea, and, and sometimes they're so much in pain, they're irritable, and they yell at their sibling and, and, and maybe even say ugly words, or maybe they yell at their parent. As long as the child is sick, the parent cannot forget the cancer. A loving parent cannot forget it, can they? The symptoms cannot be ignored, can they? Not if you want to save the child. The parent must diagnose accurately the problem. Another word for diagnosis is judgment or judge it. Here's the problem. I judge this to be the problem. This is judgment. God accurately diagnosing the condition. And then in order to you judge it right so that you can provide remedy, so we'll put the cancer into without the shedding of blood. There is no remission. We don't remit back to righteousness without Christ's sacrifice. But once the child is well, once the cancer is completely gone, there are no more symptoms. Does the parent need to remember all the days of sickness and vomiting and irritability? Or is it all forgiven and forgotten? Because it's no longer a problem. That's what the Isaiah uh, Isaiah text really means. There's nothing legal, penal at all involved in this. From the book Thoughts and Mount of Blessings, page 114, we read, But forgiveness has a broader meaning than many suppose. Forgiveness has a broader meaning than many suppose. What is the meaning that many suppose, do you think? When most people hear forgiveness, what is their typical thought about it? Eradicating record uh, books. Well, or just human relationships. Pardoning somebody. Letting them off the hook. Giving them a pass. 
and perhaps in a court of law, a legal pardon and a legal forgiveness. But that's narrow. Genuine forgiveness, of course, will not hold grudges and will not hold it against them. That's true, but it's so much more. So, be, be, But forgiveness has a broader meaning than many suppose. When God gives the promise that he will abundantly pardon, he adds, as if the meaning of that promise exceeds all that we could comprehend, my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts your thoughts. We just read that a couple of weeks ago, Isaiah 55. God's forgiveness is not merely a judicial act by which he sets us free from condemnation. It is not only forgiveness for sin, but reclaiming from sin. It is the outflow of redeeming love that transforms the heart. David had the true conception of forgiveness when he prayed, Create in me a clean heart, O God, renew a right spirit within me. And again, as far as the east is from the west, he has removed our transgressions from us. Not from the books in heaven. Of course, God as the creator, the sovereign, the builder of all reality, and the laws upon which all reality operates forgives us. Of course he does. It was never the question. And it was never the obstacle. There was never an obstacle for our reconciliation on God's side. It was always in us. Pardon? God was not the one that had to be changed. That's right. God was not the one that had to be changed. Third paragraph, most people think the question in the judgment is, who has sinned? But that is not the question that needs to be asked because everyone has sinned. Instead, the question is, who is forgiven? God is just when he justifies the one who has faith in Jesus, Romans 3.26. The deciding factor in the judgment is who has received and continues to receive forgiveness by having faith in Jesus. Do you hear the penal legal? The problem is God has to forgive and you have to keep getting it. You have to keep getting it for every deed, every shortcoming, everything you've done wrong. Yes. So am I hearing it right that even as even as Christians, you know, that we have given our heart to God and we're in our walk with him and in the morning God shows us something in here, a disease, even in our walk with God. And as he shows us that, we acknowledge it and don't try to rationalize it and try to justify it, but give it to him. And at that point, he takes it and heals, it, heals the damage done in our heart. Am I getting that? Yes, no, that's, that's just like you would with a doctor. Yes, he's working to bring to light areas in your life that you need to grow and develop and overcome. And he will enlighten you at that on your journey. And he will provide uh, new motives, new desires. Uh, heal, heal hurts and wounds in your heart. Oh, that's all true, absolutely. And that's a transformational healing process. It's not penal legal. But this is, in the judgment, what happens in the judgment? It all depends on whether you've gotten forgiven for everything. So that means that the, the people that put Christ on the cross should be in heaven. Yeah, the, they were forgiven. They were forgiven. That, that, you know, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Now, if you understand the penal legal view, they have forgiveness from the one who has authority on earth to forgive sins. They have legal forgiveness. But if you understand what we're saying, even though Jesus forgave them personally, they are still unforgiven. 
because they didn't receive the forgiveness, which moved them from a state of rebellion to a state of trust, from a state of unforgiveness to a state of forgiveness where their hearts were changed. Their hearts were not changed. So they remain unforgiven even though they were forgiven. I think that's the battle right now is, is it once saved, always saved, or are we actually changed in our hearts to where we become saved? Because we're saved to be saved because we're changed. So, so if you have the healing model, it is all, you're, you're in a saving relationship as soon as you have surrendered your heart to Christ. And the rest of it is just cleanup. So think about this. You have a double pneumonia. And with double pneumonia, you have high fevers, cough, you're very sick, you're nauseated, uh, and, and without treatment, you will die. You're on the path of death. This is a metaphor for a person who has not come to Christ. You realize something's wrong, you're suffering, you're miserable, many sinners do. And you go to the doctor, and the doctor diagnoses accurately the problem. And you agree, yep, that's the problem. And now offers you a free remedy, a free remedy. Here, you take this, you'll get well, an antibiotic. As soon as you take your first dose of antibiotic, you've left the path of death, and now you're on the path of life. That's repentance. I have surrendered my heart. I've come to trust. I'm partaking of Christ. Now, the day you take your first antibiotic, are you well? No. No. Has all the coughing and fever stopped? In fact, as you, in the beginning of the process, take your antibiotics, does more crud come up than before you started them? Does that mean you're getting worse? This is the Christian journey. As you walk with the Lord, he brings more and more stuff to light that was always deep inside that you never even realized because you were so sick. But as it comes up, it doesn't, it's not an evidence that you're getting worse and you're relapsing or falling back. It's an evidence of the deepening, penetrating power of the spirit of truth that is bringing to light the areas that were always broken in you. Okay? That's the journey. So you're in a safe relationship the entire time. And, and even if, because of our human shortcomings or whatever, one day you, with your pneumonia, I'm supposed to take the antibox three times a day. I forgot mine today. Okay, now the doctor is going to hunt you down and kill you for your wickedness and disobedience. So sin's a bacteria, not a virus. Otherwise, you have to have something. It's a metaphor. Don't be too literal. Our emphasis on sins, our acts, are diverting ourselves to ourselves and our acts and away from sin, which is a real problem. Yep. So every time we clarify this, it's... What law lens, guys? What law lens? What law lens? What law lens? The metaphor of the, of the antibiotics is all about design law, laws of health. It's all about. God's laws are the laws upon which reality are about, how he constructed our hearts and minds to operate. Human laws made up rules that require external punishment, that require some appeasement to a system or ruler or a law. It's all artificial. It's arbitrary. It's false. It doesn't change the sinner. And so you hear this corruption in things like all the sins ever committed or placed on Christ at the cross. Or you have to come back and get forgiveness over and over and over again. And so I tell the story. Remember the story of the, uh, of the young man who in uh, first grade stole a pen. It was one of those little pens a kid had in school. It had the light on it. I thought that was really cool. They stole it from the classmate. And uh, and as the years go by, they develop the character of thief. They steal from other kids. And 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 and, and late adolescents, uh, 18, 19 years of age, they get arrested for breaking and entering into cars and stealing from cars. And they go to jail. 
And in jail, they uh, have prison ministries visit them, and they are introduced to Christ, and they give their heart to Christ, and they repent. And from that point forth, the rest of their life, they live an honest life of integrity and loyalty and faithfulness, and never steal again. And when tax time comes, and there's a, a question, well, the counselor says, well, you could deduct it or not. It's one of those gray areas in the law. Oh, I'd rather pay the extra than even think about being accused of stealing or thieving. They're so honest from this point on. But they never asked for forgiveness for the pen. They forgot about it. What happens when they come up in the judgment? The Lord looks at the judge and said, well, you know, you've got a, uh, you're like David of old. You've got a new heart and right spirit. You're, you're righteous in the inner man. You're faithful and true, loyal, honest. But you never asked me about that pen. Off to hell with you. <laughs> this is the penal legal view. You didn't get legal pardon applied. It's fraudulent. And I remember George Gray's in class when he did this. He goes, oh, so close, so close. <laughs> so close. <laughs> no, our salvation is not based on memory of your deeds repented of. It's heart condition. It's heart condition. That's what it's about. And this penal legal fraud, I tell you, it leaves people in fear. I had a, a, another true story. Guy that I worked with at the hospital, uh, had a uh, had very serious heart condition. He had a uh, heart attack, was in the ER. They, uh, his heart stopped, and they defibrillated him three times, started his heart back three times. He survived. Obviously, we're having a conversation afterwards. But he was telling me, as we're having this conversation, I, every time they revived me, I knew I was aware of my circumstances. I knew my heart was stopping and starting. I knew I was hanging between life and death. And every time they started me back, there was only one thought on my mind. Dear God, I hope there isn't some sin I've forgotten to confess that will keep me out of heaven. It was all based on his memory and asking for legal application. Isn't that sad? Living and so This guy was not living in salvation. He was living in fear. But there's people that have been Adventists their whole life. I had a discussion last Sabbath with somebody, and this is still... What they say. Yes. If there's one unconfessed sin, I'm going to be lost. And so this is, uh, my book, Could It Be This Simple, is a whole chapter that really goes into this and eviscerates this idea. Uh, if you want to share them one, uh, if you don't have one, I'll bring you one, just tell me. But you can, you can instead of arguing that directly, go back, back, back up away from that and ask them, tell me how you understand God's law functions. Start with, uh, aren't we supposed to worship the Creator? The one who builds the heavens, the earth, the sea, and all that in the midst. How do those laws function? Laws of health, laws of physics. Oh, yes, yes, God, ha- God has laws like physics and laws of health and gravity. Yes, oh, yes, those are natural laws. Yes, yes. But the moral laws, they're imposed. And that, this, is what the, this is what the theologians always say to me. And I always just go, okay, so let's take that. Let's, let's accept that. Take it with them. So thou shalt not commit adultery. That's not a natural law. That's an imposed rule written in the ten that he has to keep track of and punish you for breaking, like the, all the other nine, right? That's one of, the, one of the moral ones, right? Yeah, oh, yeah. So a man who, or a woman who commits adultery, and their spouse never finds out. It's done secretly, and they don't know. Is the only problem with that that there's a little mark in a book in heaven that if they don't get a legal accounting of the blood of Jesus too, that one day God punishes them? Or does something happen inside the adulterer? Do they have more fear? Do they have guilt? Do they have shame? Do they have... Um, um, you you see where I'm going. Do their conscience get seared? Does their character get transformed? And unless they repent and experience God's grace to heal, what direction do they end up? they end up trusting other people more. They become more suspicious of others because they project out their own. 
You can't, you can't break God's law without damaging yourself. It's impossible. It's a design law. It didn't, you steal from your boss. You go and tell lies, bear false witness. You will always damage yourself. It is a design law. It's so easy to show. So no, even the moral laws are design laws. You cannot have health while violating God's design laws for life. All of them. Boy, there's so much more I wanted to share. I've got several more wonderful quotes I wanted to go through. Um, I was going to talk about propitiation. Propitiation. Oh, boy. It's in the quote from Romans that they went through, the propitiation. I'll just try to cut. I'll have to cut three paragraphs out. Just go to this one paragraph in Desire of Ages, um, page 625, and it says, now the judgment of this world, Christ continues, now shall the prince of this world be cast out, and I, be, if I be lifted up, will draw all unto me. Thus he said, signifying what death he should die, this is the crisis of the world. If I become the propitiation for the sins of men, the world will be lighted up, Satan's hold upon the souls of men will be broken, the defaced image of God will be restored in humanity, and a family of believing saints will finally inherit heavenly home. This is the result of Christ's death. Now notice this. What is the propitiation? It's often taught it's the legal payment. That's what they think it means. It's a, it's a swaging or turning away of the wrath of God. But notice what this author says the propitiation does. If Christ becomes the propitiation, the world is lighted by it. What does that mean? The world is lighted by it. it, it, it it's by the truth. Of God's character revealed in Christ dispels the lies. So, so where is the light being shown by the propitiation? Well, in heaven, God was quite confused when man died and he was really in darkness and anger and hostility and he needed the light of the propitiation to influence him to be a gracious God. I mean, you laugh at this because it's hysterically just, it's wrong, but that's what's taught in the penal model. God's angry. Rather, you even hear it said sometimes. It was sin is so offensive to him. He can't even look upon it without an intercessor to stand between us and him and, and calm him down and get, and get his sensibilities under control. It's just perverse. No, the world was lighted, not God. God did not need enlightenment. Next point after the world being enlightened, uh, says that soul, the Satan's hold upon the souls of men will be broken. The propitiation frees God from his legal obligation to punish us for our sins. That's what it's taught in the penal model. No. No influence on God. God so loved the world, he sent Christ to break what holds us into sin. So the power of the lies about God are broken, and our own fear, shame, guilt, selfishness, the power of that in our souls is broken, and we're won back to the love of God, to the love of God, through the love of God. And then the last is that the defaced image of God will be restored in humanity. Again, where is the effect of the propitiation? Is the effect in heaven or is the effect in humanity? So all this stuff, when you hear these terms, propitiation, expiation, justification, and all these things, they're always taught through this fraudulent legal system that corrupts the gospel and makes God out to be the problem. When in fact, the reality is always that sin changed humanity and God has been working through his agencies to fix the brokenness in us so that we can stand in his life-giving glory. And there's a whole other section we're not even getting into. 
Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you so much for all that you've revealed through Jesus and all you've done to achieve our salvation through Christ. We ask for the Spirit to come and take the victory, reproduce it in us, enlighten our minds, transform our hearts, and empower us to be agents for you, to lift your name up and glorify you, restoring us back to your full family so that we can be in your presence very soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen.